0: Sound of Breaking Bad
1: for not high yet, I'm Kenzo and I'm feeling particularly cheerful today because I've called in sick to work, the sun is out, and I had just enough money on my card to buy six burger buns and a cucumber. So, that's my lunch sorted for the rest of the week. Coming up on the show today, there will be some of your questions, some of my answers, and an interview with James Flynn, a member of the local homeless community who very kindly agreed to chat to me for a little while outside Tesco Broadmead. I was trying to think of something cheerful to discuss at the beginning of the show and kept drifting towards trauma, a sign of the times perhaps. Um, Anyway, I, I ventured into silly news stories and then politics, which is always a cheerful topic. And nothing really stuck until I started thinking about the poisoning of the Russian spy, Sergei Skripal. And I came across this quote in the Wall Street Journal. The raft of conflicting and often implausible versions of a story is typical of Russia's response when it has been caught in malfeasance or even caught red-handed. The aim, Western officials and some Russian analysts said, is to muddy the waters and drown out facts. It's a strategy that has gained traction within Russia because it taps into popular mistrust of official versions of events which flourished amid the distortions of the Soviet era. If lots of irrelevant information appears, then people lose track of what is relevant and become disoriented. They don't understand what's going on. This quote refers to the practice of governments sending out various and often conflicting media stories to achieve certain aims. And these aims seem to be to create an environment of confusion, a platform that provides fodder for conspiracy theories and, therefore, further confuse the truth even bring into question the very nature of truth. And this is something that we as a society as well as me personally have been having trouble with recently and I have begun to feel a little bit like a shaky cat with feet on separate pieces of breaking ice slowly moving further apart. So, because of this, I thought I'd start the show with a cheery subject of psychological warfare and the dissolution of the foundation of belief. More specifically, what happens when we lose trust in the media? Media audiences expect news to provide them with information to help them understand what goes on in the world around them and help them obtain useful information for daily life. This is why many news programs or news channels will have a logo that's like real life, real fact, you can trust us. Because audience also expect media to help strengthen credibility and stability and status within society and state. And these expectations, both ways of understanding the world around you and to strengthen your personal credibility within your society, these expectations have clear parallels with other belief structures such as religion or general political systems and indeed scientific research. In other words, What we see in the news is part of the building blocks for how we understand our lives and and our place in the world. So when the reliability of your belief system is suddenly questioned, as at the moment it's increasingly becoming apparent that visual truth in the media is no longer to be relied on, it is akin to the trauma of bereavement. Suddenly your whole system of experiencing and interpreting life comes under threat and I know this may sound a little bit like an overreaction, but I mean really it may it may not be. This sharing of information and trust in a method of comprehension is fundamental to our lives. Trust can be considered as social capital and the foundation of any community or collaborative work. Also, making any kind of rational decision is based on collecting information from the environment and making decisions based on this information. So if we have doubts as to the legitimacy of this information then how are we to trust our decisions or make rationalisations without questioning everything and sending ourselves completely mad? There are some suggestions that this ground shaking, rug under feet sweeping, dissolving belief systems is a new kind of warfare, it's set up deliberately to confuse and disorient a nation. Could it be true that this post-truth world is a deliberate attempt at moving warfare into the psychosphere, was causing uncertainty and paranoia the aim of Scripples attempted assassination? This I mean this line of thought is beginning to head into the realms of conspiracy theory, but it does highlight the effect of beginning to mistrust the portrayal of the world around us by the media and what some of the consequences can be. We cannot live on speculation alone why this theme resonated with me I I think is because a little while ago I bought a pug purse Um, I bought a purse with a pug dog on it I found it in a charity shop and I loved it it was so garish and so disgusting that even though I don't like dogs I decided that I loved this and I wanted to own a pug the purse had um, it was a pug lying down with like roses around its face and it was hideous, but beautiful at the same time. So, as I realised that I loved it, I began to see pugs everywhere. Uh, pugs seemed to be promoted as being really cool. They were the topic of games, TV adverts, and cheesy crockery. And I tried to work out whether my sudden pleasure in pugs had been formed because I've been subconsciously exposed to this advertising and promotion, or... I was trying to work out whether I was only noticing this promotion now because I'd had my attention drawn to pugs already and I realised that I didn't know which it was but either way my likes were now aligned with the media and this felt kind of strange. Suddenly it felt like my likes and dislikes, they weren't my own. Suddenly nothing was mine, everything was an external influence and I couldn't believe anything my mind told me was real because it all came from an external source that I couldn't trust and I kind of acknowledged this before with subliminal advertising but I'd never felt it and it never rocked my world so much in the way that it did then so this is how I kind of relate to losing trust in the media all because I purchased a pug purse (laughs) realizing that nothing around you is real is is pretty terrifying and it has definitely led to a certain amount of overwhelmed retreat from the world around you and this seems to be a, a a kind of increasing phenomenon in our western society today and again this parallels with suddenly having your faith or your belief system rocked and taken away from you so I looked into a bit of advice and the advice I found for people in this situation is allow yourself to grieve And to have a look into the grief cycle and try and understand that there's a process you can go through to rebuild your life. I'm not saying that I felt the need to rebuild my life, but I felt the need to find some solidity and some stability. And suddenly everywhere I looked, there was none. And it it was horrible. Another piece of advice is to share your feelings with a friend that won't push their faith system on you. Also, don't get involved with any rebound beliefs. Um, a piece of advice that made me chuckle because I imagine suddenly believing in more and more extreme ideas and ending up alone putting chocolate in my eyes to help sugarcoat my world on the advice of some false obscure guru hidden in the depths of the internet Um, also re-evaluation is good advice having your belief system shaken opens the doors to new thoughts and new perspectives hopefully not perspectives that lead you to put chocolate in your eyes so yeah, I guess these are my thoughts for this week. Not perhaps the deepest or the most critical or the most kind of fully formed introduction to this episode, but something that stuck with me this week and hopefully something to ponder on. So now to your questions.
0: Hiya, um twenty nine year old female from uh, living in New Zealand here. I'm just wondering, um what your thoughts are on microdosing with lsd um just to sort of lead a life of better quality Um, and whether you've got any tips on it um for instance what a good dosage per day would be or even if if you should even take it per day should it be per week or per month Uh, yeah any information would be great thanks
1: Hmm, microdosing. So the practice of microdosing is consuming minuscule doses of LSD or a- another hallucinogen to improve cognition, but without actually tripping. This is a, I'm hesitant to say fad, this is a trend that seems to have come out of, kind of Silicon Valley, a lot of wealthy uh, Entrepreneurs or business types have started microdosing to enhance their creativity or to help them with depression or anxiety. And it says it's a way for them to subtly open their mind and become more creative and more productive in the everyday, but without actually tripping. This is loosely based on experiments done in the 70s of full doses of LSD to try and understand how this affects the brain and affects creativity and so now the thought is that even just taking tiny little bits could help you. There have been very limited studies on it, there was one person who's documented their experience of taking it every day for 30 days and they have said that although they didn't notice any effects themselves they did several tests every week one in creativity and one in mood and they both on they both scored better like more creative and a better mood on both of these tests even though they didn't actually notice anything. Uh, there has been one published study which has just been interview and anecdotal evidence and generally it's more positive, people note that there is an improved mood, uh, there's improved creativity and it can counteract symptoms of depression, however also don't do it when you're hungover because it'll make your hangover worse, Uh, it's very easy to overdose and after a while some people found that their mental health begins to get worse again. And also if you dose too late, you can suffer with insomnia as your mind is overactive and overstimulated. But personally, I would be nervous of opening my mind up to psychedelics every day just because I am aware that my mental state isn't the most stable and I'd be scared of overdosing. And I think this is potentially why... If you are going to do it, taking LSD would be better than taking mushrooms as the dosage would be a lot easier to get right. The ideal or the stated dose would be 10 micrograms of LSD which is basically getting one little blotter of LSD and cutting it up into 10 pieces. So ten to twenty-five micrograms uh, means that it's sub-perceptible. You won't notice it in daily life, but it will over time hopefully help to expand your mind and improve your mood. On mushrooms, zero point one to zero point three grams is the recommended dose. However, I feel that getting the dosage right on mushrooms, as mushrooms, their strength is so variable, and obviously it's different with every type of mushroom you take. Getting the dosage right would be a lot harder some people take it every day although there's a worry of building up a tolerance every day which hasn't really been documented to happen but you could take it every day or every 3 days or 1 to 3 times a week it's it's up to you really ideally probably somewhere in the middle so maybe like every other day or once every 3 days some people take it for a few weeks at a time or for a few months at a time I think it's subjective and it would be up to you to see what felt right and hopefully you wouldn't get too overwhelmed with it but at the same time you don't want to become reliant on it if you're not reliant already but yeah, I think experimenting with seeing what's best for you really, but that's my advice probably LSD, 10 to 25 micrograms and one to three times a week.
0: Hi uh, it's Jay from the Philippines and my question for you is um, there's a lot of people in my social media feed who support the ongoing war against drugs in the Philippines. Uh, Many of them think addiction is something that's easy to get over, and that individuals can just snap out of it and straighten out their lives in an instant. Um, And with this, as their core belief, the supporters of the drug war think that it's fair game to jail or even kill on the spot with no due process whatsoever any drug user. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? Uh, Is there any meaningful or effective way that I can sway people's opinions, or should I just not engage?
1: Thanks. First, I'm going to apologise with my pronunciation. President Duterte? President Duterte, elected in 2016, used powerful and emotive rhetoric during his election campaign, and one of the cornerstones of his manifesto was to rid the country of drugs and drug addicts, which he believes stand in the way of the country's economic and social development. His... Violent and quite abusive statements encouraging the extrajudicial killings of addicts has created a kind of an irrelevant legal atmosphere, which is ironic, seeing as he is originally a lawyer and has pledged to uphold the law. What he's done essentially is he's to really legitimise and state sanction murder on the streets and in people's houses, if so long as it's placed under the umbrella of the war on drugs, then there's no consequence. And he considers that the deaths of families and innocents is necessary collateral damage. The war on drugs in the Philippines is a very violent and upfront and vigilante kind of atmosphere. Some compare the situation to Nazi Germany or, more recently, to Trump's America. A national leader brought to power out of frustration for the inaction and corruption of previous state figures and seemed to be tackling a stated problem or specific social or cultural group with direct action. Duterte has claimed there are over a million drug addicts and cartels in the country And 12,000 people, addicts or not, will never know, are already dead. Killed on the streets with no legal or personal defence. So it's a pretty intense situation. And what can you do about it? And is it best just to disengage? Retaliating against believers of the Philippine War on Drugs with aggression and argument will result in just the headbutting of ideas and both parties more set in their ways and more frustrated at the other. In one-on-one discussion it's about being relatable and framing your argument in terms that the other can understand or bringing a wide abstract concept down to the tangible and the close. That's usually quite a powerful way to change perspective. However in terms of understanding violence when you haven't really directly been involved in it exposure to TV violence allows us to almost imagine we've been observers of horrific situations and as we imagine the scene we've seen on the TV and we think back to that time when we were sitting on the sofa when we watched someone get killed and from that we think oh you know I was fine perhaps you know I'll be fine in reality it doesn't matter to me it kind of it numbs that reaction to a situation because we've seen it but yet not seen it so I don't know trying to individualize and personalize violence in order to prevent it is kind of harder these days but I think still there's value in attempting to bring a wider concept into the personal sphere I ended up researching how people stood up to Hitler for this question, and not really something I was expecting to do. One of the major methods, and one we are familiar with because of Anne Frank's diary, is sheltering somebody. In this case it would be sheltering an addict, which is not so simple as sheltering a member of a persecuted social group. Because an addict, as I've mentioned before, has different priorities and is at risk of endangering the host and is at risk of running the way and risking themselves to go and pick up. Thus, cutting another tie to safety, comfort and companionship. And still, somehow people believe that addicts have a simple choice between yes and no. (laughs) You know, why would you risk that for something you could quite easily just put put down and say no to. But anyway, so only shelter an addict or somebody involved in the drugs trade if you think you can trust them. Something to understand is that not everyone is a person of action. It's up to you to decide where your skills are best placed and only after you have considered the level of your involvement. It's... Kind of for you to interrogate your attitude towards it and see how much you feel the need to engage and to what extent you feel the need to engage. Meaningful engagement can be small to large acts of kindness towards suffering people or it can be contacting an operating NGO and seeing how you can help directly on the ground. If you're not in the country, perhaps you can enact small kindnesses to people in similar situations where you are but essentially you have to do what's best for your safety and if you feel strongly enough that you want to risk it and you want to fight for these people then go for it but there are other options you can do and see what's best and I don't think that you have to feel guilty and like you've just stood by and done nothing because you haven't rushed out and started in some direct action. If you want to have a look into NGOs, go to www.pcnc.com.ph forward slash NGO.list.php and there there's a full list of NGOs. Also, something that I found is a really interesting book which is used as a textbook in secondary schools and it is called Holocaust and Human Behaviour, published by Facing History and Ourselves, which has got really interesting things to say on alienation of peoples and the development of race and ideas of racism and The origins of the holocaust and reactions to it and it's it's all in really bite-sized chunks with lots of videos and lots of kind of interrogation questions so that's also really interesting it's a free pdf to download if you felt like it
0: what is the most ethical drug and what is the least ethical drug and where do other more commonly used drugs fit on that scale and why
1: Ethics are very subjective. So whatever answer I give is going to be based on my personal ethical values. And these are likely to change from person to person. So I will describe my methodology and then give you my results based on it. But if you wanted to know the best ethical drug to take, I think it would be worth you possibly looking at what ethical values matter to you and seeing how the different drugs weigh in. So what I've done is I have taken a selection of commonly used drugs and within that I've taken pharmaceutical drugs and I've lumped them as one category and I have also included alcohol because although it's legal it is still very much a drug. After selecting these drugs I've chosen five ethical points to consider and then I rated each drug on each of these points from one to five How I will present this evidence to you is I will give you a brief description of where the drugs stand on my ethical selection and then I will give you a list of how I've rated them from worst to best The five ethical factors I've chosen to consider are land clearance, so environmental impact, human cost, so lives affected or taken through the drug production and through the sale of drugs. So they're two different things, human cost production and human cost sale. Also the effect that manufacturing the drug has on global warming. And also the amount that a drug is cut with different substances in order to make a profit. So I just recorded one version which went through every drug and talked about the different pros and cons and the different ethical points. And it was really boring. So I'm going to talk about it more in trends because there are definite trends that you can pick up. The first, looking at the environmental impact and global warming together. So the trend is Generally, the drugs which have a natural base and need to be cultivated in order to produce the final product, generally they are the worst for the environment, as you would assume. With cocaine, for example, the coca leaves, you need about four metres squared Of coca trees to make one gram of cocaine and this is worse than palm oil and we know that palm oil's monoculture is really destroying the rainforests in places like Borneo and Malaysia. Similar with heroin but it's not quite as damaging because the poppy is a wildflower and so it doesn't have to be such strict monoculture. With MDMA, it's it's different for two sides of the world. The saffroni tree grows native in Cambodia and it grows native in Canada and the US. In Cambodia, it's being cultivated to the point of extinction, whereas in North America, at the moment, it's not quite so endangered. And the difference between this and the drugs which are chemical based is that they are created in a lab and really the only effects with global warming is with the energy used to power the labs and keep all of the systems going. Also with crystal meth there's a bit of a side issue of the toxic waste and because it's an illegal drug, it's unregulated and so the waste is placed wherever is possible which is becoming really damaging to the local communities. Mushrooms are an exception to the outdoor-indoor difference. Mushrooms are not cultivated intensively and where they are grown on a large scale they don't need to take up a lot of space and they grow quite quickly and can grow amongst many other plants so mushrooms are pretty spot on if you want to think about the global warming and the environmental cost of drugs. In terms of the human cost, there is a very clear divide between legal drugs and illegal drugs. Where the drugs are legal, they are not in the hands of gangs or cartels and therefore there is a lot less fighting, war and death surrounding it, and also the drugs that are legal are not cut in order to maximise profit, although with tobacco you could say that it's not cut but it's mixed with other chemicals for example formaldehyde and other cancer-causing chemicals. These have pretty serious adverse effect on human lives as it's one of the biggest preventable killers worldwide. With pharmaceutical drugs and drugs that are available on prescription, there's a different ethical dichotomy. Investment and research into pharmaceutical drugs tends to go where there are reliable markets and there is a reliable consumer base. This is places of a wealthier economic background where people have stable jobs, regular income and regularly attend GP appointments. In a poorer economic context, the consumer base is considered less reliable and so there is less investment into treating the issues that people from poorer economic backgrounds face. Essentially, this means that companies put money into research and investment to where people can afford to pay for their medicine and they don't really bother trying to provide medication for people with issues in poorer countries or communities what this means is that people who are heading up the pharmaceutical companies are deciding who lives and who dies based on their potential profit ketamine as it is produced legally It is also quite a clean drug. It's not often cut, although there was a time when there was a drought and ketamine began to be cut with methadrone, which was horrible. Ketamine is not yet really massively in the hands of huge, big, illegal organisations because it is produced legally and it's produced in a lab. Therefore, the human cost in production is not a major issue and nor is it really in sale. In terms of drugs being cut with other horrendous substances to make a profit acid, mushrooms, ketamine and alcohol are all pretty clean they're all pretty good at just being what they say on the tin however with drugs such as cocaine or heroin you get a lot of cutting and it's cut as we know with anything from talcum powder to rat poison in order to maximize the profit that the dealers can gain from the sale of the drugs. So ultimately there are a lot of ethical elements that can be brought into question when you are considering what to take for a sustainable night out. The main trends are that drugs with a natural base that are grown outside are worse environmentally as they take up more space and they destroy the natural ecosystem. Drugs that are chemical based are made in a lab, therefore they're better environmentally but they are worse for global warming because of the energy that it takes to produce them. With the human cost there's a pretty clear divide between legal and illegal drugs especially in production where you have regulation as opposed to mafia control. and. There are certain drugs which are better for cutting, which are often cut, and there are certain drugs which aren't, and this is mainly due to the method of production and the amount of profit. To summarise, my list from least ethical to most ethical goes cocaine is the worst, heroin is second worst, then meth, then MDMA and tobacco score equally in my little ethics chart then it is weed then ketamine, alcohol then pharmaceuticals then mushrooms then acid so if you want to go and have a very ethical night out I would suggest taking a hallucinogen, if you want to go and be unethical it would be from meth downwards really, meth heroin, cocaine that would be the biggest unethical decisions you could make. However essentially the choice is up to you. For this week's interview I wanted to compare and contrast the voices of the homeless community and the people that provide for them. So I wanted to interview one person who worked in a homeless shelter and one person from the homeless community. I sent off a couple of emails to homeless shelters and I didn't word what I wanted to do very well and it came across quite potentially quite offensive towards the homeless homeless community actually Um, so that didn't go very well instead what I have done is I've split the interviews into two weeks and this week I have an interview with a member of the homeless community and next week I will have an interview with somebody who works at BDP, Bristol Drugs Project, an organisation that provides advice, help, and clean needles and uh, recovery sessions for addicts in need. When considering the style of interview that I wanted to do with a member of the homeless community, I was very conscious of the potential for coming across condescending or patronising. And I didn't want it to feel artificial so I kind of just went into it with a conversational idea. I hadn't really planned many questions I wanted to just see where it went um, to try and make it feel natural and not imposing so I apologise for my lack of deep investigation but I think that to be honest more just representing the voices of the homeless community is more important and so I'm going to replay this interview in as much an unadulterated form as possible and open it up for judgment really and I hope that it doesn't come across condescending or patronizing or accidentally included any disrespect in the interview but here it is it is with James who is a homeless man he's been homeless for a long time um, interrupted by plenty of short prison stints for minor crimes he was a really nice, really friendly, lovely guy as I'm sure you will see in the interview some people did come along and kind of have a chat with him while this was happening and the interaction some people might find a little bit uncomfortable so beware Also the sound quality of the interview isn't that great because I asked him if he wanted to go to the pub or if he wanted to go for a drink and we could talk about it inside but he wanted to stay outside and just carry on making some money so I've recorded it on the streets with passing cars and seagulls so I apologise for the sound quality Oh hey, so if you want to like, yeah, introduce yourself
2: and say who you are and... Yeah, my name's James, you know, I'm from uh, Wolverhampton. Yeah, man, um, you know, I've got to say about my background. you want yeah. to talk about my background? Yeah.
1: Yeah, a little bit.
2: How long have you been in Bristol and what have you been doing? Well, same, i come out of jail about six months ago, you know what But long story short, the reason I'm in this busy shit because I used to rub off of my family when I was younger. Yeah. I didn't realise I was doing And uh, you know what it is as well? I don't know what I'm telling you, brother. I you anyway, but you know, when I was younger, now, I used to have a stepmom, yeah. And, er, uh, um, I used to have a stepmom, obviously. She used to have kids, like, as well. So, I'm the youngest out of a lot of them, yeah. So, uh, my brother's the second oldest, like, you see, I mean, my real brother. Yeah. But the rest of them, there's like four of them. So, they're enough related to us I'm just fucking because you're married. What Do you mean? You Yeah, I used to, uh, your mum used to fucking batter me when I was young, like, I think because, like, I was younger, she's jealous, like, I think, you know what I mean? Because, like, I don't know, because I was the youngest one. But anyway, like, uh, as soon as as my dad found out that I used to, like, not speak to my dad, he used to, like, get my expressions on my face the way, like, I walk and talk and, like, don't speak and things like that, obviously. I told him the end, mum used nice to fucking batter me. So fucking, um, I need to kill her like he did, do you know what I mean? I need her, yeah? Fucking. It's good to have a daddy. He's still out now anyway, yeah. still. I need to kill her, yeah? Anyway, fucking. I was thinking, you now, I was in care. Now, my mum fucking sim- um, got me out of my dad's yard she knew what was going on, like. Then, what? Because I was a nuisance, fucking, erm. Um, I got put into care then my dad got me out of care and from then i started robbing and i went to jail all the time
1: Do you how was it like going going in that jail was it helpful at all like was there was that you know you know when i was younger it was helpful yeah but if i had the right uh guidance
2: i'd probably get somewhere in life you me but i didn't have no i didn't have the right guidance to help me out do you mean yeah but like you know what it was when i was younger now i used to be uh, it's healthy like and um uh, all good mate to help and now you get more of a bounce like you felt fresh man yeah have you know what i'm saying though yeah, yeah. so sure. how long have you been in bristol
1: yeah about six months now
2: right? yeah. Yeah. do you reckon you'll stay here for a while or you know what i don't know what's going on you know because like if i had like a bit of money like a bit of money, I don't know,
1: like, I what I want to do, like, not fuck to do, myself, yeah. do you know? yeah, that's it. Well I mean your kind of options are yeah, yeah. limited, isn't it, once you've been through the system. Because do you find that like that kind of drugs are an easy thing to do they help you kind of live this life so, Do they make you feel better and make you kind of feel do they, yeah, do they help you in this life or do they yeah. not?
2: It does help you in a way. It helps you, like, pass time, like... Cos, obviously, if you're homeless you've got nothing else for doing that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Where can you go? You're talking know, to, like um, places to play pool and, like, hostels and things yeah. like that, do you mean? Know? Yeah. It's so, like, really, that's why people smoke like, smoking, not like, drinking and yeah. it's time and like, sleep or whatever, do you
1: Yeah. What do you reckon about hostels? Do you, like... Do you think, are they, are they doing enough? Is there enough places to be? Are they, night, or like, what's the environment like? You they
2: know you doing some of them skanks, are they? Yeah. You know like, yeah, more money, money makers. really. Yeah. You get some of them, they're like, they're too bad. Like, I don't know, um, you get, like, shared accommodations, like 20 pounds a week and that, all food and food, whatever, you know It depends on, like, what situation you're in, no? Like. Yeah. But you do get, like, skanks, you no, like you get, you get stalled, lost over skanks.
1: Right? Yeah. Is there, like, is there a good community of of people? Like, do you have, kind of, people that you spend a lot of time with and a good community of people you can chat to? No, not really. At least we are geezer. What about the guys up around the corner? today? Because you said that's where you stay most of the time. Oh, yeah. You know you two
2: old spies said to come around. and have a spliffy shit like that, you know?
1: What does Spice do? Because I've, like, I've I've heard, it's just, like, kind of really strong smoking weed, isn't it? Yeah. Like, extra that, yeah. It's extra strong like. Yeah. Is it, like, smoking really strong skunk, where you're just flawed and, like... Yeah, you are um, wondering, uh, and you're fucking asleep. Yeah. you are probably asleep, you know, mate? I'm usually, it. Like... Yeah, mate, like, I, I used to smoke loads of weed, but it just, just makes me really paranoid now. I can't... That's, like... I reckon if I smoked Spice, I'd probably... I probably just get paranoia. Point, no, yeah, you know. <laughs> not for <after> that. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's kind of why. You know, I use I use gear to just shut my brain down. You the gear now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Still smoking smoke?
2: You
1: smoke it though? Yeah, yeah. I smoke it myself, boy. Yeah. Oh, uh, does, how how did you stop? Or like, is it was it just kind of natural?
2: You know what though, there's all different ways I've stopped, I've been to jail and i stopped I've it, have done a lot and I've like walked around constantly and like been on the rob, mm. checking all dorms, cars and I like, keep on walking In other words, I've walked off for about three days my lot. Like, oh. do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's all different ways I've been walking, but methadone, I've never, t- I've touched it once and I'll do it again Do you know, like, dangerous shit, Do you reckon if I went off to something and said, what? Like, fucking, man. Just like fucking run. Just like stabbed them like that. Do you reckon I'll get away with it? probably will People keep starting on me, it's really pissing me off. Why the fuck do people keep starting on me? Someone's starting me fucking again, man. Fight yesterday, fight today, and you know, i got someone else starting me now. You know? What the fuck? It's like starting the circle, fuck. It's like fucking like, if you, know, you don't want to fight me or something, you know? I'm thinking I should just go some little stab. Stop someone in your arm or something. Well, fuck all the stuff. You want know, to come to Siphon? Huh? N- you want know, to come to Siphon? Alright, oh, sorry, man. I'm just saying. They right. yeah. are. Probably not a good idea to go stop someone. No, mean, like you were saying, you know, I do like you have other options at all. Yeah. It's not helpful. So, there's a point in saying, you know, the stuff, I just think they want tension
1: sometimes. Do you find that people kind of that want to go back into the prison system, like, can prison be seen as, like, a safe space?
2: It depends on the person, like, on the person, self. I've never given a massive as fuck yet, with whites and that, and kids and kids and stuff, sort of. because, like, they've got the mental, mental do it, like, He's thinking about his family, his kids and shit like that, and he's giving me someone else or some shit like that, so, like, like, on the place, yeah. I've too. been to I've been to bear I have like, loads. of
1: fucking hell. What was your experience of that like kind of coming in and out and being shipped off to different places all the time? I don't know, like I think it's
2: like a mad like, little buzz in a mad way, because, like we've to different jars, it's like different way, right? different blood like, routine and things like that, do you know what I mean? And like when you get used to it, does you I didn't like you? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what systems are there out there that help you after you come out of jail like is there anything that, that is place that is there for like when you come out that can set you up with a house and a job and getting your feedback?
2: How do you assess Like, where is a safe place to sleep or a safe place to be? I mean, so <laughs> me. Anyway, I sleep here, That's it. am yeah. sleep oh. like sleeping here. I you know? pissed off. I am like to I to I not i supposed to beg. Like, I'm, I'm sick begging like I'm right a big to beg for you. Do you I
1: yeah, it's hard enough begging for yourself, let alone begging for other people as well. You know. <laughs> All right, I'll stop, I'll stop recording that. Uh, apologies again for the sound quality of that interview. In case you couldn't hear it, what we were chatting about really was, well, some very poorly phrased questions that I asked him mainly about his experience and about the prison systems is where it kind of went to and he said that he he has been to a lot of different prisons and when he was younger they were they were quite helpful about get quite helpful they got him out of his routine and they helped him to and they helped to mix things up a little bit uh, he also said that that was a good th- that being sent to a lot of different prisons was a good thing as well because he it would have just he would have just ended up going mad just stuck in the same four walls. He also mentioned that there was quite a serious lack of support for when you leave prison. There's nowhere that you can go to to really get your life back on track, and that's something which I think has led to a lot of people becoming homeless after they've had a stint in prison, mainly just for minor offences. Also, a an interruption that we had, I don't know if it was able to, if you were able to hear, an interruption. At one point, a guy came up to us and with no introduction or anything, he just said, do you think I'd be able to get away with it if I just went up and stabbed somebody right now? Because he's sick of people starting on him and getting into fights, and he wanted to just go and stab somebody. James wasn't too happy about that. He didn't really see the point of why people said that. And that led me onto the question of thinking about was that our prison seen as a safe space? Do people want to go back to prison? And he and James replied that it's very much dependent on the person. Some people will do well there and some people don't and one of his friends who was a bodybuilder and had a family and kids outside of prison ended up killing himself because he just went he just couldn't handle being in the prison space so it's a pretty sad story really Uh, James was a really really lovely guy um I saw him earlier today on my way back from work but I was too tired and I wasn't able to chat to him but I really want to in future take the time to keep a conversation and keep a friendly relationship up because he seemed he seemed really appreciative and really lovely of some company and something to do even so back to the questions
0: i I'm a year old woman living in Devon and I'm curious about the experience of using street drugs. I've never used anything very much myself, not even alcohol to excess. But I get the impression that sometimes people use drugs as a way of silencing or burying uncomfortable sensations, thoughts or feelings that are bubbling up inside them. I experience uncomfortable thoughts and feelings in myself at times, especially in the night when there are a few distractions. It's horrible and I want it to go away. So I can understand someone reaching for something they know will end it, even if it's only temporary. I've learned to trust that they will fade one way or another. Something unexpected will happen to shift me into another groove or morning will come and it won't seem so bad. But I wonder if you have found a substance that makes it go away. It's very hard not to reach for that thing when you do feel troubled. I imagine it's harder to try to deal with it on your own. Is this what makes it so hard to stop using drugs once you have started? It seems that people often find they need to turn to powerful systems of belief or religion or a group to belong to that gives them something, something tangible to put in the place of the drug. So oh,
1: yes, I, I just wondered what your thoughts are about this. Yeah, um, that's exactly what a lot of addictive behaviour is for. It's, it's a way to to ease the pain and those uncomfortable thoughts that come into your mind. And once you have found a solution and something that will make them go away instantly, and then once you've used it once and it, and it and then again and it continues to work then yeah it becomes it becomes your crutch and it becomes a fail-safe way of making you feel better and it's the the difference between instant gratification and long-term well-being and sometimes it's difficult when you're suffering to understand that the long-term well-being is ultimately better than the instant gratification it will bring you more peace in the future than the instant hit of an addictive pleasure or that instant release of serotonin and dopamine that we are becoming so familiar with. It's instead of that instant release that makes you feel better. In terms of belief systems, you will find that a lot of born-again Christians, or a lot of conspiracy theorists, or a lot of people who are quite vehemently Aggressively involved in a religion or a belief system have come from backgrounds of drug abuse or alcoholicism or general abuse or neglect themselves. And so yes, it's a way for people to feel part of a community, and it is also when people have hit rock bottom or they've realized that the instant gratification is no longer working, it's no longer effective for easing the internal disquiet. That's when belief systems tend to come into play and that's when people will reach for these other solutions or these other offers of solution that people will give them and so that is when you can kind of become quite blinkered and quite focused on what you have, the path that you have found to bring you out of the traumatic situation that you are in and whether... After a while, addiction itself becomes a traumatic situation, or whether you head straight to the belief system. Addiction and a belief system are kind of can be can be related in that way, as they are both external things that offer a way of escape and connection. One, however, is more of an illusion of connection but it is more instant whereas one is a community but yeah they're both two sides of the same coin really. Addiction is the instant gratification and a temporary solution to internal pain whereas a belief system is more of a long-term community-based feeling of inclusion which also in turn can be a pain relief mechanism. And sometimes one leads to the other as I said before belief systems or extreme belief systems can be born out of when an addiction itself when addictive behavior itself becomes part of the problem which is not always the case but but it can become the case and it can make things worse so ultimately they're both pathways to try and achieve the same end but through different routes and some people may never Choose one may never choose the other or or one doesn't necessarily lead to the other, but yes, both sides of the same coin and once you have found your system of pain relief and your your support system, it is very difficult to put it down and to to reevaluate and change your behavior, whether that is belief system or whether that is addictive behavior. once you've found your solution. People are likely to stick with it until something significant happens that changes circumstances and brings a new solution to the fore. And that's it for this week. Next week we have an interview with a member of BDP, the Bristol Drugs Project, talking about their experience of working with addicts in Bristol. As always, if you'd like to get in contact, send in your questions, please contact me, Kenzo, at 0752117752. Have a good week and see you next time. Cheers.
0: Bye.